Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. And I'm Nazmo Dirzadeh. Today, we'll talk about the war in Afghanistan. It's seen the world's deadliest fighting for several years now. The current phase of the conflict started when the U.S. intervened after the attacks of September 11th, when the Taliban refused to hand over Osama bin Laden. But even before then, the country had been at war for decades. U.S.-backed forces quickly ousted the Taliban in 2001, but the years afterwards saw the movement regroup and mount a powerful insurgency against the Afghan government and its foreign backers. I'll be meeting personally with Taliban leaders in the not-too-distant future. Uh, I really believe the Taliban wants to do something to show that we're not all wasting time. In February 2020, after years of backroom talks, the U.S. struck a deal with Taliban leaders. That deal entailed the U.S. pledging to withdraw its forces from Afghanistan. The Taliban, in turn, promised not to allow the country to be used for transnational terrorism and to enter talks with the Afghan government. But precise details of the group's commitments in the deal aren't clear. Negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban started in September 2020 in the Qatari capital of Doha. Like many peace talks after a long war, progress has been slow. Meanwhile, violence has continued, fighting racks, villages and contested areas of the countryside. And in towns and cities, a campaign of unclaimed killings has targeted government officials, activists, clerics and journalists. In rural Kandahar, the war has barely stopped since it started nearly 20 years ago. Another deadly attack by Islamic insurgents in Afghanistan, this time targeting students. The deadline for the U.S. troop withdrawal, the 1st of May, is looming. It represents a dilemma for the Biden administration. Pull out troops and the Afghan government might quickly lose ground. Yet, a lengthy extension could push the Taliban back to all-out war. Also, U.S. forces have now been 20 years in Afghanistan. 
If they stay longer, Biden may well face exactly the same dilemma down the road. The U.S. plans to convene a meeting this month in the Turkish capital of Ankara that will bring together Afghan parties, including the Taliban, as well as Afghanistan's neighbors and other regional powers. It's not yet clear how this meeting relates to the talks in Doha. Afghan leaders on all sides are eyeing warily the U.S.'s decision on troop withdrawal. To talk about all this, we're joined by Andrew Watkins, Crisis Group's Afghanistan expert. Andrew has worked on Afghanistan for many years, including for the United Nations and as a liaison to the Afghan security forces. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Hi, Naz, and thanks to you both for having me on today. So, Andrew, uh, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, Let me start with the question of where things stand right now in terms of the U.S.'s decision to withdraw. Where things stand in terms of the U.S. withdrawal is that no one, perhaps even the U.S. government itself, is entirely clear. No clear, unambiguous statement has been given. We've had a variety of comments, statements, remarks been issued from President Biden down to senior members of his administration, all of which suggest that there's going to be some sort of delay. And and we're less than a month out now. We've had a growing sense for some weeks that the May 1st deadline is not going to be met. At this point, we're looking at a logistical impracticability to pulling out not just the U.S. troops that remain, but all partner NATO forces, uh, which at this stage outnumber uh, U.S. combat troops, all international contractors, which interestingly are also specified in the deal with the Taliban. So, Andrew, could you talk uh, a little bit about what this decision looks like in Afghanistan? We can start with President Ghani himself. Obviously, a U.S. draw would have big implications for the government. Some time ago, it looked at least like at least some leaders in Kabul were, were sort of in denial. Has that changed? And if so, sort of how is Ghani preparing? The idea, the, the notion of denial has been a big one ever since Special Representative Khalizad embarked on trying to initiate this process more or less two years ago from today. There was a lot of disbelief that the United States would ever truly leave. There was a moment of reckoning and, and a, a confrontation with the reality that things might actually change when the U.S. went to Doha and signed the deal with the Taliban. But even then afterwards, we saw an engagement with the U.S. from the Afghan government that seemed to suggest if we can just drag this out until the next presidential election, potentially uh, with a change in U.S. leadership, we might have a chance to turn this around. We might have a reconsideration of the decision to withdraw with the latest comments uh, from senior officials of the new administration, and in particular with a letter uh, that Secretary of State Blinken dispatched to Afghan leaders uh, last month, in which he very openly and explicitly warned not only that the U.S. would be leaving sooner rather than later, but that it was the U.S. government's assessment that the Afghan government may not stand much longer without continued U.S. assistance, it does appear that denial is no longer really an option and and that most of the Afghan political sphere has come around to the reality that this will happen. So, uh, I mean, Andrew, let's let's talk in a moment about some of the other sort of big power brokers on the, the government or the republic side and then come to the Taliban. But could you just say a word or two more about President Ghani? What's he doing in some ways to, to prepare for this sort of reality that the U.S. is going to leave, if not in May, presumably over the following months? 
Look, President Ghani has been in an incredibly difficult position ever since Khalazad began this process, which he did begin by speaking to the Taliban, an insurgent movement seeking to overthrow the Afghan government. The United States has made the process as it has over the last two years by deciding to cut the Afghan government out of negotiations. Uh, for more than a year, it was just the U.S. speaking to this insurgency that they've been helping Ghani's government fight for nearly two decades. Uh, the writing was on the wall from the beginning, and many commentators have put it this way, that this was as much about arranging uh, suitable conditions for an American withdrawal as it was about actually achieving a peaceful end to the Afghan conflict. And part of conditioning that withdrawal was a threat to the very existence of Ghani's government. Not just to Ghani or his office personally, but to the constitutional order that he presides over and, and that the American and, and NATO intervention helped prop up. And so from the beginning, Ghani has seen this process, the way the U.S. has approached it, and any of its potential outcomes as probably dismantling or radically altering the Afghan constitution and, and maybe even the system of government and, and the ideals of citizens' votes and citizens' rights really being redrawn. He has not actively objected or publicly broke with the United States, uh, but he has done what he can to throw up narratives that remind the United States and Afghanistan's other international partners that dangers still exist and that the Afghan government remains a reliable partner. It deserves continued support. Let's talk about some of the other big power brokers that, that Richard has already mentioned. So we know that U.S. envoy Zal Khalilzad has been doing the rounds with some of the old Mujahideen commanders that fought the Soviets. Some of that same group visited Moscow for a recent meeting convened by the Russians. Is your read that these actors are really still influential? You know, a lot has changed. Uh, many, many of the same characters invited to Moscow and who are being discussed as invitees for this high-profile conference in Turkey uh, were also attendees 20 years younger in Bonn, uh, the conference that not only established a political uh, arrangement, but really preceded this era of U.S. and Western intervention in Afghanistan. Are they still influential? Their influence is not the same. Uh, at the time that Bonn was convened at first, uh, many either had popular uh, political mobilization, uh, most of them had some degree of armed force that they could marshal. Uh, in a vacuum where no state or, or central authority existed, these were the figures who could marshal force to at least oppose a state. And so Bonn was an act of bringing them all into the same tent. Today, the question of whether or not they, they have the same influence or even comparable influence is really debatable. I have assessed that they don't, in fact, have the same kind of weight that they used to, because in large part, many of them are not able or, or not politically willing to contest the state by force in the same way that they could have 20 or or even five or ten years ago. The, the Afghan state and its security forces really have reformed and evolved to the point where one of their primary threats is no longer contestation from, from other 
uh, let's say, pro-government Afghan stakeholders. However, these are figures who have grown incredibly wealthy and influential over the last 20 years, uh, in large part because of Western funding and support and assistance. And so what they might not retain in the ability to challenge the government by force, they certainly still have the ability to interfere with a peace process that cuts against their interests, to play spoiler. It's very easy to understand why all of these figures are still considered essential. It's bringing everyone under the tent. And how about the army? What does it look like right now in terms of the coherence of the security forces and their ability to to defend this this order that is in place now? The Afghan security forces and and its army in particular, it's a complex picture because it's an incredibly mixed bag. We have to be honest that in many ways it is a huge mess. It's in very bad shape both relative to uh, its adversary, the Taliban, and and just as one measures uh, state security forces around the world. It has long had and continues to have a problem of ghost soldiers on the ranks, that is, commanders and political figures skimming off salaries for troops that don't actually exist. Uh, The force has consistently come under its approved levels, That's not just because of ghost soldiers, but also because of recruitment difficulties, problems of pay, uh, mistreatment, sometimes even abandonment in remote areas of the country and on the battlefield. But at the same time, there has been a revolution in the armed forces. Number one, demographically, because you have a transition from uh, state security forces that were built on the Northern Alliance militias uh, of the 1990s that really came to dominate the Afghan state in the first decade of Western intervention. And that is not what the Afghan security forces look like anymore. They have achieved a rough demographic and ethnic and communal identity parity. Different ethnic groups and and other major groups around the country are more or less fairly represented. And so there is much less state capture Uh, within the security forces among power brokers than there was in the past. You also have a story that needs to be told about Afghan special forces. The elite operating troops, uh, which number some 30 or 40,000 out of an army strength that is supposed to be around 200,000. These really are the premier counterterrorism forces in the region. They're unrivaled in South or Central Asia. And, and they certainly are capable, due in part to the strength of the American relationship, uh, the continued relationship in, in training and supporting them. So you've had a real, a series of revolutions within these armed forces, but we also have to stop and say that does not mean that they are in good shape because they absolutely are not. Andrew, maybe let me ask one follow-up before we move to the Taliban. So how much does the the sort of coherence that you talked about uh, within the Afghan security forces, they are loyal to the the Afghan state, how much does that depend on US especially, but also other foreign funding? How much, I mean, it relates a little bit to the point that uh, you made about the old Mujahideen commanders. If money doesn't come into the security forces, wouldn't some parts of the army go home? or revert loyalty back to some of those commanders, or is it now more complicated? I think that's true. It is a complicated picture, but uh, certainly the Afghan army, which is, and the Afghan security forces, which are entirely paid for 
by uh, foreign funding. And an extraordinary part of that is U.S. funding solely. This is still to the tune of some four to five billion dollars a year. That's not something the Afghan government can afford. It's it's not something that the GDP could even make feasible in in the years or the decade to come. And and so you have a real existential crisis when it comes to funding and assistance on a human level. When it comes to Afghan troops, many are not paid on time. Uh, or in full, even as it is today. Uh, there's reporting from across the country that at times, you know, young men are coerced or at least pressured, uh, whether it's by financial hardship or social conditions to join. It's certainly not a desirable path. Very few outside of the special forces that I mentioned think of it as a profession or a calling. So I think we absolutely would see a retraction uh, in the absence of continued levels of American funding. You you ask Afghan troops and police out on checkpoints in the country what they need, and what they say is they need the American airplanes to keep flying overhead. It's not just about their paychecks uh, and, and their funding. It's about the entire security umbrella that exists with the American presence. And, and that makes the question of, does the U.S. stay or go, much more than just a question of troops on the ground. There really is an entire umbrella and an entire security infrastructure uh, that, that the U.S. Has, has been propping up. So, Andrew, let's move to the Taliban. So the withdrawal of foreign forces, I mean, this is what they've been fighting for for, for two decades. It was the main thing they gained in the deal with the U.S. government. How would they feel? How do they feel about the Americans staying beyond the May deadline, even a few more months beyond the deadline? They're being very, it's, a, it's an odd word to use with a violent insurgency, but, but they're being very coy uh, about the question. They're not tipping their hand in, in terms of what their full reaction uh, might be. They have repeatedly insisted that their interpretation of the Doha agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban uh, sets a fixed date for the U.S. and foreign troop withdrawal. And they have repeatedly insisted since then that they are adhering and fulfilling their commitments. And so there is no question of conditionality from their perspective. There is no question of uh, a withdrawal or an extension uh, of, of the troop presence because the Taliban might not have met some, some conditions or other. And they argue that what is going to happen is an immediate relaunching of attacks on those international forces come May 1st, which would be the day past the deadline. What they have not said is whether or not that will be a definitive end to the dialogue that takes place between the U.S. and the Taliban diplomatically. They have not said whether that would collapse the Afghan peace talks between the Taliban's negotiators and, and those of the Islamic Republic, the Afghan government. And they also really haven't said, beyond attacking international forces, whether or not they will unleash the full force of, of, their, of their movement to mount you know, what are referred to as spring offensives, their sort of annual surge in, in combat activity that often places cities around the country under siege, uh, which they have held back from doing over the last year since the agreement in Doha was signed. So there's a lot that they're not saying about what they might do. 
Uh, and, and I don't know whether that gives a window of opportunity for the United States to to negotiate a bit uh, or, or whether that's just the Taliban being vague to their benefit, as they often are. So tell us a little bit about the Taliban beyond its views on the on the U.S. drawdown and the movements defied for many years efforts by uh, by its enemies to, to sort of split it. I mean, we've written how. Taliban leaders have been able to sort of implement a ceasefire across the country a couple of years ago. The command and control is sort of reasonably strong within the movement. But is there much daylight between sort of what leaders want or are prepared to compromise on and how fighters on front lines view things? Yeah, there's without a doubt, there is, like in any political movement, uh, a generational gap. There is a gap between uh, the elites, uh, the leadership of this movement, uh, all of whom have ties back to the earliest days when this movement was founded in the 90s, and those who are actually doing the fighting today. Uh, The Taliban too, like the Afghan security forces, has undergone a series of transformations. Um, For the first decade of their insurgency, much of what they did required the uh, physical sanctuary of Pakistan as they fought to uh, grab and seize control of parts of the Afghan countryside. Today, there are not only Taliban fighters, but Taliban commanders who were recruited and have fought their entire tenure with the Taliban in their home districts because the Taliban have managed to spread across the entire country. And so you have generational gaps and you have this diversity and evolution within the Taliban ranks. You have a lot of uncertainty among Taliban fighters uh, as to what their leadership is even doing or what the outcome might be. And and you often hear when Taliban rank and file are interviewed by foreign press uh, or even on social media, which, you know, 20 years ago they had banned but are now actively taking part in. The average Taliban rank and file fighter might tell you uh, something that is ideologically rigid and is centered on the concept of victory, uh, victory in their struggle against the government and against all the foreign influences that back it. That doesn't necessarily mean that the we- there is a wedge between the Taliban's leadership and its rank and file that the group can't overcome or that it can't keep a handle on. No one worries more about the cohesion of the Taliban as a movement than its own leadership. Um, the, the movement was really rocked in 2015 by the revelation that their original founder and leader, Mullah Omar, had been dead for several years. It collapsed uh, uh, an earlier series of peace talks. It threatened at moments to really pull the group apart, and it looked like the Taliban might splinter. They didn't. They managed to rebuild consensus and restore a sense of discipline and control over the movement. Yes, there is a great deal of diversity and I think even disagreement among the Taliban. Uh, We're talking about tens of thousands of people, not just fighters, but, you know, various levels of support and adherence and affiliates across the country. What we're talking about is a cohesion born out of flexibility. The Taliban gives a great degree of latitude to its local commanders, to the policies they enforce, And it very rarely issues red lines. Uh, It enforces the red lines that it does issue to its own people. But a great deal is actually left to local context. And and that's that's a formula 
uh, that has proven successful. And Andrew, do you think the do you think that discipline, that control you talked about, that would survive the sort of compromises that the Taliban might have to make as part of a peace deal? It's it's a fascinating question, and it could turn into a rabbit hole. But but I think the the conclusion at the end of whether or not the Taliban could weather compromises that might come as a result of any peace deal is again no one worries more about their cohesion more than they themselves do. And what that means is there will be no peace deal that uh, includes compromises that Taliban leadership worry might pull the group apart. Uh, they're going to make sure of that. Andrew, can I ask you to tell us a bit about the the killings that we spoke of in the introduction? Uh, we've seen an increase in attacks and killings that are occurring in urban areas. What's going on there? It's it's the most terrible development of the last year, and and it really casts a shroud over uh, anything peace related uh, in 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 the early stages of this Afghan peace process or these these peace efforts. Um, part of the agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban included what are still officially secret, but what we have learned a good deal about some very particular restrictions on Taliban behavior. And it was the Americans' hope that this would reduce violence around the country overall, uh, and, and in particular that it would protect civilians. One is no large-scale uh, bombings, suicide attacks in urban centers, towns or, or cities. Uh, the other is no direct assaults, no military campaigns that happen to threaten and encroach cities which, as I mentioned, is is uh, has become an, a, an almost annual tradition for the Taliban to demonstrate their strength uh, and the weakness of the Afghan government. So both of these uh, patterns of, of military activity and behavior, the Taliban largely, not entirely, but largely did refrain from, and you, and you saw a sharp reduction in those actions. What you saw instead rise up in its almost in its place was a campaign of targeted killings. People who have been following in the press will will notice, you know, killings that have taken place in Kabul. Uh, unfortunately, what happens in the capital just receives a lot more media coverage. But this is a countrywide campaign, and there are people being assassinated across swaths of civil society, uh, civilian members of government. We're talking about judges, uh, lawyers people trying to help implement programming in agriculture departments, uh, improving Afghan livelihoods, journalists in particular, media workers, and, and also just uh, Afghan activists. And this also includes, because it's Afghan society, uh, clerics and religious figures across the country. It gets very complicated because there are many actors who can marshal the kind of violence and force uh, that's taking place. The international community has reached a degree of consensus that the Taliban is behind the majority of these attacks. And when you look at the data of what's going on around the country, it's true. In many places, the Taliban is the chief actor where some of these killings occur. And there's really no hiding that there is a, a coordinated or at least instructed campaign from the highest levels. What's not clear is to what extent all other actors in Afghanistan are using the fog of war that this campaign has created 
to possibly carry out their own agendas. As terrible as this is, this is now a perfect moment for anyone in Afghanistan who has the means and the will to have an opponent or, or their interests uh, wiped out with violence. Because it's the easiest thing in the world to blame it on the Taliban, who aren't claiming any of these killings, but whom most Afghans and, and the rest of the world are blaming. And Andrew, what about violence in the countryside, in rural areas, especially areas where the Taliban and the government are, are fighting? If you're a villager in, in kind of one of these areas, what does that look like? I mean, for, for several years, uh, there has been discussion about how Afghan citizens of urban centers were being spared the brunt of the fighting. Uh, when we take the long view since 2014, when uh, you know more than 100,000 U.S. And, and NATO troops began a drawdown to a much smaller presence in the country, the bulk of the fighting has been between Afghan security forces and the Taliban. Uh, that's who's fighting, and that's who's dying, and, and it's Afghan civilians out in the countryside being impacted because that's where the Taliban has, has waged its insurgency. And, and so we can look back at the last five or six years, not just the last year, and rural Afghans really are suffering the brunt of this fighting. So, Andrew, we've talked about the Afghan parties, but what about the region? Pakistan has long ties to, to the Taliban that you referenced earlier. Uh, traditionally, Russia, Iran, India, uh, with ties to, to the Taliban's enemies, sort of what was the Northern Alliance, although at least Russia and Iran now have have these ties to the Taliban. China, too, appears to have sort of established relations with insurgents. How are they all viewing the U.S. drawdown and the, and the, the potential that U.S. troops are going to leave? Pakistan is, is a unique case because of its uh, relationship, its nurturing sanctuary and support for the Taliban uh, over, uh, over the last decades, uh, not just as an insurgency, but uh, during the 1990s as well. Let's come back to them in a moment. The rest of the region is apprehensive, uh, there are adversarial powers to the United States and the region. Uh, Russia is a near neighbor and greatly influences the Central Asian states. China shares a small strip of border uh, and also has a close relationship with Pakistan. And of course, we have Iran as well. All three of these states do not want to see Afghanistan collapse uh, in, into a state uh, that resembles the multi-party, total civil war that consumed the country in the 90s. All of these countries will be directly or indirectly uh, impacted by refugee outflows, trying to escape uh, a worsened situation in Afghanistan. Um, and economic development will, will remain stalled uh, and, and, and won't move forward. Uh, when you look at what China would hope to achieve with the Belt and Road Initiative, a worsening of the situation, a dramatic worsening, isn't good for any of these powers. And yet all three do want the United States out of the region. But what they don't want to see is a U.S. exit that precipitates catastrophe, that winds up impacting them, and that they have to then uh, respond to and do damage control for. So it's not entirely supportive, but they're also refraining from the many obstructions that they could throw up for the process thus far. And I guess as unique as Pakistan's relationship to Afghanistan and the Taliban and the conflict is, they are generally in the same position. They do not want to see uh, a civil war widen or expand. 
Pakistan will likely be impacted by refugee uh, displacement more than anyone. And so we've seen an interesting thing, though Pakistan generally supports the Taliban's line and has uh, since this process started, they're not as keen or as insistent that the U.S. really should abide by the letter of the Doha Agreement and get out by May 1st, because I think they know that the conditions would deteriorate and that it would impact their interests negatively. In effect, we have a lot of hedging and a lot of wait-and-see posture. And in light of, of all of this complexity and the and the many actors that we've discussed here, what would a constructive outcome from this meeting in Ankara look like? The U.S. has set wildly unrealistic expectations uh, just in what has been released and leaked to the press. Uh, the idea that a week or 10 days in Turkey or, or in any venue, even by convening the senior most leaders from both sides, which will be difficult and, and may not actually happen, you have very little ability to hammer out all of the complexity of this complex, uh, this conflict. The U.S. has been a part of for 20 years, but Afghans have been fighting for, for over 40 years now. That's not going to end in 10 days. So the first thing to do is to measure expectations. The best realistic thing that could come out of Turkey is some sort of initial guiding uh, agreement, a, a framework of shared principles. Um, as, as odd as it sounds, both sides of, of these talks, it's not even clear if they want the same general outcome. What does it mean for these talks to be successful? What would that lead to? We've talked about how for President Ghani, at least, and, and many of his supporters, um, that has to be a preservation of the core of the current constitutional order. But that's not possible uh, for the outcome of any agreement that the Taliban is a part of because they are dedicated to precisely the tearing down of that order. And, and so there's so much work to be done even just an agreement on general principles would be a positive step. It would be great if that could be hammered out in Turkey. If not, one other ray of sunshine coming through a fairly dark cloud is the initiation and what will hopefully be the growth of a new UN role in the conflict. Uh, the UN Secretary General has appointed a personal envoy to help facilitate not only this conference, but the, the regional aspect of these talks, and hopefully a more formal framework uh, for the supporters of Afghanistan and for regional states, you know, and all of those complex interests can be brought together. Uh, the United States was never going to be able to bring together the region, uh, given the relationships they, they have with all of the states we've mentioned. Um, and so beginning to shift things over to a UN framework and, and to hopefully something more lasting. If that can begin to be built in Turkey, uh, that might be the best to hope for. And Andrew, what does the Ankara meeting, uh, what does it mean for the Doha talks? That's, as you said in, in the introduction, that's really still unclear. Um, and, and it's not even clear that the United States is sure what the relationship would be. Uh, US officials have told us that 
they want the turkey process to feed into and to supplement and to jumpstart the Doha process. But when you speak to many other participants and stakeholders, uh, the refrain is that Doha is dead and, and they feel that this turkey proposal killed it. Sorry to jump in. You think there's any way that the U.S. can use the Ankara conference to sort of reinvigorate the the Doha talks? A lot of that depends on whether the U.S. is convening this conference and trying to push for a proposal that allows for a politically acceptable withdrawal or whether it really is committed to the long, hard slog of a peaceful settlement to the war. Depending on which they're, they're really committed to, not only tells us how a conference in Turkey will feed back into Doha, but where this is going in the long run. Andrew, could we end on, I mean, this has really been a a fascinating discussion of the challenges that, uh, you know, that the country faces today. But could you reflect a little bit on the on the sort of last 20 years of US of international involvement in Afghanistan? I mean, I realize this is a huge question. But you know, you've been involved with the country for a long time. What, What are sort of some of the main things that you take away? I mean, it's something it's something that a lot of people have have wished for and hoped for before me. It's it's that the next time the United States, uh, or any of its other Western partners, but we know that it is the United States that acts as initiator, sets off on such a an intrusive and comprehensive intervention into a an already conflict riddled context when it begins to undertake grand projects, that those in the beginning stages realize that this is where the United States has wound up in the past. And the damage that does, not just to U.S. credibility, but but to the partnerships and to the people who have invested in those projects. We're talking about Afghans today. Um, All the Afghans who invested in what the U.S. has tried to prop up and to support, but even those that didn't even those that fought against it. We're at a point where the U.S. is now willing to walk away, but the U.S. leaving doesn't end this conflict, and it's not sure that it will end anytime soon thereafter. Reflection on the part of U.S. policymakers is is what I would hope for. Um, the terrible sense that this moment might have been inevitable um, and, and hope that it can be avoided in the future. Andrew, thanks very much. It's really a, uh, a, a very somber note to end on, but it's been an, uh, an illuminating discussion. So thanks very much. Absolutely. Thanks to you both. So, Naz, what did you take away from that? I mean, you, you've been in Afghanistan, right? I mean, some, some years ago, uh, you, you know the country a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think uh, I was reflecting while he was talking that for those of us who've who've known the country um, and, and its struggles for the last 20 years, I think the idea that we would be having this conversation in 2021 would have been unthinkable uh, in 2002. But in a way, I, I thought Andrew's comment at the end that A, it should not have been unthinkable even in 2002, and B, that that the responsibility born for the situation that we find ourselves in today is significant and likely will not be borne by those who should bear it. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think as he sort of hinted at, the big question now is the one we we sort of touched on: what's coming next? What's the U.S. going to do? I think you know people can debate about the pullout, but as Andrew says, it's happening, even if a bit slower than the May deadline. And you know, it, you know, I think that's probably right. After twenty years, we shouldn't have any illusions about what U.S. forces can achieve. Now, ideally, there'd be a peace process first, but you know, that's that, that's probably going to be tough, as Andrew said. So you know, I think the the, the real question now is sort of. What does U.S. policy look like afterwards? What does its diplomacy look like in the region? Sort of perhaps more importantly, what does its funding look like? You know, it provides, as Andrew said, you know, something in the region of, 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 of four or five billion a year. And, you know, again, that sort of partly keeps the army together. Without that funding, it's, you know, it's sort of far from clear what's, what's going to happen. Sometimes I sort of think about what a podcast in a year's time would look like on a, on a country and, you know, on many of the countries we cover, the scope is very wide. I mean, there's a lot that could happen, but I think that's especially true in Afghanistan. I mean, I, you know, I think that the future right now really looks quite scary if you're in, in Afghanistan, which is, you know, even more of a tragedy given the terrible suffering the country's experienced over what now more than four decades of, of, of war. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. And I'm Naz Mudirzadeh. You can find more of Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Mae Francis and Ida Holly Namby. And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question or comment, a rating or a review, and we hope you will join us again next week. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.